0: Assalamualaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail, and I have a treat for you today. I'm on the phone with brother Hassan Munir from Yaqeen Institute. Let me just read some of his bio. Hassan Munir calls himself the professor of Islamic history because his goal is to bridge the gap between academia and the general public in the field of Islamic history. Born in Pakistan, he has lived in Toronto, Canada for the past 20 years. He completed a BA in History and Communication Studies from York University in 2017 and is now pursuing an MA in Mediterranean and Middle Eastern History from the University of Toronto. Hassam is also Public Relations Manager and a Research Fellow at the Yaqeen Institute of Islamic Research in October 2017, he was recognized by Heritage Toronto as an emerging historian in the city. He has a broad range of experience in the fields of journalism and public history. Brother Hassam, welcome to the Islamic History Podcast. How are you doing today?
1: Assalamu alaikum, uh, Brother Muttaki and everybody else. I'm doing well, alhamdulillah. And uh, thank you so much for having me on.
0: Well, alaykum wa-salam. I am so happy to have you. And I really want to talk... With you about islamic history in general we're going to probably cover a lot of topics and we probably won't have enough time to cover everything i want to talk about first thing though what is that term professor of islamic history where did that come from
1: uh it's actually coined by one of my friends he was um trying to describe me and saying well you are not pursuing your phd yet you're not, um, you know, a full professor yet, or even on your way to being a professor. But you do like to educate, um, and you like to educate in a way that's very accessible for the general public, even people who aren't, you know, necessarily or particularly specialists in the field of history. So, um, if you put those two things kind of together, he um, said, you know, why don't we call you a professor, like somebody okay. who's just a brother in the community, but maybe um, you know, at a slightly more advanced stage in his education in the field of history, um, in the field of Islamic history, so let's call you the professor of Islamic history.
0: All right, makes sense. What made you? Well, when did you, for for me? I knew from a from a childhood I loved history. When did you know that you liked history? When did you first recognize your love for history? Uh, when did you realize that you were really a true history nerd? If um, I don't mean that in a bad way, but Most of us as people who love history are kind of nerdish in a way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think uh, really uh, from an early age, I I found myself um, naturally fascinated uh, with history um, and uh, seeking myself in the uh, history that we were taught um, in Canada. So I grew up in Canada um, Mm -hmm. while we were being taught in school, um, trying to sort of find myself or people who would be very relatable to me in the history. You now, Canada' is a very um, multicultural kind of country in the sense that there are people from many different backgrounds uh, who live here, and often they're first generation immigrants as I was. I wasn't born in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think very much from an early age, um having that, Uh, sort of friction between the very traditional, uh, you know, Punjabi, Pakistani, Muslim culture at home and then um, the very, uh, you know, broad mixture of cultures that I encountered at school in particular while growing up, um, it did create this uh, sense of trying to find um something to build my identity around. And and for me, um, I think I, I naturally gravitated towards uh history. I was I was always very fascinated by stories of the past. Um the first time I can distinctly remember being very fascinated is in fifth grade when we were learning about ancient Egypt. Um and, and I just thought it was the coolest uh thing in the world. And obviously at that age it's it's more a feeling. There's no real um rationale for it um but i do think in retrospect now that um because of that immigrant uh experience i was trying to um sort of root my history uh, in in something um, that was uh, you know very appreciable, but something that I didn't find in the history textbooks per se, right? The Islamic history, which you wouldn't find in history textbooks, and I think we'll get more uh, a bit more into that. But at the same time, I, I wanted to um, root myself in it, so I it kind of uh, spurred me to start learning on my own and start enjoying that subject.
0: Okay, I know I remember when I was in high school. Um, I I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and I remember my history teacher in high school mentioning the phrase that um, Islam was spread by the sword. And I was only 14 years old at the time. Uh, Did you hear some of the same stuff growing up in Canada? Some of the same um, uh, misinformation in in, uh, Canadian high schools and stuff like that?
1: To be honest, in my personal experience, no, it wasn't so much misinformation, it was the lack of information um, Mm. that was very uh, prominent in my experience. I remember. Um, distinctly in sixth grade, um, we were learning about how the Europeans first came to what they called the New World or what became the Americas. Um, And there was one paragraph in that textbook about uh, Muslim Spain, because obviously Christopher Columbus, um, his first uh, voyage um, in which he quote-unquote, you know, discovered America. Uh, was right after the fall of Granada, right? The last Muslim kingdom in Spain. So, I guess to put some context into what was happening in Spain, they had put that one paragraph mentioning Muslim Spain, and it was the most exciting thing for me in sixth grade. So, um, I know that, uh, and I know from, uh, you know, studies that have been done, um, on the way history is taught um, and the way it is mentioned, uh, Islamic history in particular in textbooks in certain regions of Canada, particularly Francophone Canada, uh, the French-speaking uh, part of the country in Quebec. Um, and there is quite a bit of misinformation that's been flagged in textbooks. But um, And I'm sure that may be broadly the case in, in other uh, maybe, um, you know, provinces of Canada and other parts as well. But I, I don't think in my personal experience so I ever came across misinformation per se. It was more the absence of information that was very kind of disturbing.
0: Okay. Growing up also in Canada as a young immigrant kid, did you uh, experience any, uh, it's a, the phrase we use these days, Islamophobia or any discrimination uh, be, being immigrant, or was it fairly accepting of, uh, was everyone pretty much accepting of you? Uh
1: you know, Alhamdulillah, in my personal experience, um, it it has been um, one in which uh, I have felt uh, very accepted, um, of, of, you know, by my, the people I've sort of grown up around and the people I've engaged with in different environments. So um, that's not a challenge I've personally faced. Um, obviously, um, whether you call it Islamophobia or anti-Muslim bigotry or however you describe it, um, it certainly does have, uh, some roots in Canada. Um, as, as we know in 2017, for example, the Quebec mosque shooting happened, right? Yes. Um, in yes. which, uh, six worshippers were killed. Many others were injured. So, so it certainly is, uh, very real in Canada. I don't want to make it seem like, um, it's not, but at the same time, in my personal experience, I did not feel very strongly, um, uh, at any point that uh, I was being treated differently or um you know seen differently uh because of my uh, my faith or or my beliefs,
0: okay, that's good. At what point did you decide to pursue history as a field of study and as a career when i was um when I was in in college, I started off as a biology major, then I thought maybe I should switch over to history. I really do like it. And um, my mother pretty much talked me out of it, saying I'll, I'll never get a job with history. I'll, I'll be a teacher at, at best. Now that there's, there's anything wrong with teaching, I'm just saying that's what I. So basically, I went ahead and did something more practical, like accounting. But did you have any um, what, what made you do it in the first place? And did anyone ever try to discourage you from pursuing history as a field of study and a career?
1: Um, So I uh, basically saw an opportunity. So, um, you know, the the general story goes the way you just described it, right? Um, Where a person has a natural um, inclination or even a rational inclination um, towards uh, studying history. And um, they're usually deterred from it. And, uh, you know, the deterrence often comes from a place of concern, which usually takes the form of, well, what are you going to do with a history degree or something like that? Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I've been able to um it justify uh and, and let me backtrack a bit so i started off um actually in communication studies and in journalism and i'm still somewhat involved in those fields like public relations mm-hmm. right and i find myself um very much involved in uh anti sort of um you know for for lack of a more specific term uh, anti islamophobia work in general right um through journalism through pr just trying to um trying to construct a certain counter narrative in the mainstream media about the Muslim community and about Islam, um, counter to what is uh, very, you know, widespread within the mainstream media. Um, So I started off uh, there, and uh, for history, uh, for me as well, was um, kind of, you know, playing around um, with the question of what I'm actually going to do if I pursue this as a subject of study and um, what, uh, you know, really. Uh, drove me, I guess, uh, is first of all, I kept it going on the side out of personal interest. So even while I was really focused on the journalism aspect of my career, I was still, um, you know, running my iHistory blog about Islamic history, just blogging about topics that I found very interesting um, or I found very relevant to um, the Muslim community. Um, And also, I kept studying history. So any elective courses I could take in university, I would try to take a history course, uh, um, and especially something like South Asian history or Middle Eastern history or Islamic history, something like that. Um, and then ultimately, um, it dawned upon me that there is an opportunity, um, and it's something that uh, will have to, you know, I will have to expand upon. Um, and it's an opportunity that to a certain extent, I would have to create for myself, but it's not that there isn't an opportunity. And what that opportunity is is that, we have this wealth of knowledge that is produced about Islamic history in academia, right? But academia oftentimes um, can uh, and and oftentimes does um, become a sort of ivory tower where it's just scholars speaking to other scholars um, or to their students, right, or just to a very small segment of society, whereas I want this knowledge uh, to be available, to be accessible to the general public, right? And that is sort of how I justify for myself and how I continue to justify to my, my parents and to my family and um, to anyone else really about, you know, why am I going now um, into the field of history more deeply because I realize this opportunity that I can take that knowledge and over time develop different um products, right, Um, different solutions to to use like very uh, techy terms um, that are in use these days that would actually, um, you know, be new ways to have the Muslim community and even non-Muslims engage with Islamic history. So things like documentaries, things like short video series, things like video games, things like... virtual reality tours right there's so many things that especially new digital technology gives us the opportunity to um, explore the different ways that we can discuss history and we can teach history and that's where i found really my um my space to uh and my justification to go into the field of history because that is what i'd like to do
0: okay i find it interesting um there's um a video game i'm pretty sure you've heard of it um called assassin's creed and yep. yeah, not too long ago, I was doing, uh, I, I had a series on the assassins comes from the Hashashin and the Ismaili, um, Ismaili sect of Shiite, um, of the, yep. the Shiite world of Islam. And as I was going through some of these um, popular names within the story, my sons who played that game they recognize a lot of the names I was mentioning. Um, I can't remember all of them now, but Hassani Sabah and all these people that were characters in the video game. So when you mentioned that, using video games as a teaching method, I found that kind of interesting how that could be done.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, to be fair, um, it is not a very sharply defined idea in my mind at the moment, like exactly how this is going to come about. But um, I think the most important thing is to... Uh, work towards that to try to refine the idea, to try to refine a program to actually make this kind of um, multimedia accessibility uh, for knowledge of Islamic history, to make that happen. But um, uh, I, I see... Uh, the benefit and uh, to some extent I see the necessity because um, the more I think about it um, and the more I observe what's going on in the world, traditional forms of knowledge exchange are being uh, challenged in many ways. So I think it's going to become even more important in the near future um, to have these uh, new um, and technologically uh, enabled kind of ways to learn
0: history. Okay, that sounds good. So now speaking of multimedia, um Yakin Institute, when did you join Yakin Institute and maybe you want to elaborate or tell us about your role with Yakin Institute um what the what Yakin Institute is. I've heard of it before and I I kind of I'll be honest. I kind of think of it as a as a Muslim think tank. That's what it kind of th- seems like when I as I get into as I read um, the articles. And you do have some hefty articles in there. <laughs> yeah, some of the articles you have in there are are really for people who really want to dig down and read because they are very um very scholarly, very academic, and and uh, very deep. And so uh, I appreciate. I was reading one. Um, I was reading one called how Islam was spread, I believe you wrote that one. It's a very good one. But if you can just tell us some of your history um, with Yaqeen Institute and how Yarkin, and what Yaqeen Institute is all about.
1: Sure. So Yaqeen Institute for Islamic Research, as the name suggests, is a research institute, or um, how you termed it, a think tank. I think um, that the terms are interchangeable, more or less. Um, in a nutshell, Yaqeen um what it does it is brings together scholars and academics from diverse backgrounds and uh, has them develop research papers which guide uh, the reader and it's assumed a non-specialist reader, right? The readers are people um, in the Muslim community who are non-specialists in these fields. Um, And these papers are meant to guide those readers through complex or controversial topics from an Islamic perspective. Um, These research papers are then Sort of made accessible for the public in the form of a variety of media products such as infographics, animations, uh, lectures, curriculum materials, discussion guides, etc. Right. So I joined Yakeen in uh, early 2018 at the beginning of 2018 as a research fellow, um, and until recently I was uh, only a research fellow, and now I have also um, taken on the role of uh, a public relations. Um, uh, manager at Yaqeen Institute. Um, and so to give you a sense of the entire process, actually with respect to the article you mentioned, how Islam was spread, because alhamdulillah I wrote that article, right? And um, I uh, I can give you sort of, uh, I think it's a good case study as well for how the entire process works um, and sure. how uh, you know, uh, what sort of um, yakin's uh, whole uh, idea is. So I've authored two research papers for Eugene Institute so far, and I've co-authored one. Um, The first two were about dismantling this very popular narrative that historically Islam was spread by the sword. And as you mentioned, that's something that um, you were even told in high school, right? Um, And it's a very popular uh, kind of idea that is sort of spread around. And when people say Islam was quote-unquote spread by the sword, um, it can imply a number of things, but forced conversions uh, are one example, etc. Now, of course... There may have been certain instances when uh, this did occur, when Islam was forcibly spread, um, right? Uh, or was uh, somebody attempted to forcibly spread Islam through mm. coercion, uh, through brute force, um, and, and things of that nature. Um, but The narrative and the slogan is a gross overgeneralization, right? It's misleading. It's constantly brought up by so many Islamophobes. Um, And you are talking about a world historical process, a transformative process um, that has been going on for 1,400 years in virtual, you know, really every region of the globe. Um, And when you... Sort of try to sum that up and try to push this idea, like you're trying to sum up the entire history of Islam, the entire history of the spread of this, uh, you know, this belief system and this way of life in four words spread by the sword. It's just very intellectually dishonest. Um, so I tried to um, write two detailed papers, and Alhamdulillah, I believe they came out quite well um, to sort of break down that narrative, just to. Um, you know, the papers weren't meant to be a conclusive rebuttal of every instance um, or example that is brought up of forced conversions or Islam spreading by the sword. What the paper was designed to do was actually um, guide the reader that if you are faced with this accusation in general, here is a way to think through it, right? Um, and, and then respond accordingly, um, or this is uh, some things to think about um, to formulate your response. So um, these papers were reviewed, again, to give you a sense of the process at Eugene Institute, so they were reviewed by um, scholars uh, who are senior to me, who have seniority, um, such as Dr. Samuel Ross, uh, who recently received his PhD in Religious Studies from Yale University. Um, the papers were then turned after being published, um, and they were turned by some very talented and creative people at Yakin into an infographic and animated video. Um, the infographic was translated into Mandarin. Um, one of the articles was uh, fully translated into Arabic. So the point is, a lot of effort has been put um, into putting together an Islamic and academic response uh, into the public sphere. Um, to challenge that false narrative that Islam was spread by the sword. So this, uh, in a sense, is um, what Yaqeen Institute is all about. And I would encourage people to visit the website org and sort of just go through it, look at the articles, and I'm sure they will find something that's very interesting, uh, very eye-opening, very thought-provoking.
0: Okay, so let's dig into that idea about Islam being spread by the sword. Now, I've... um I don't want to mention this comedian's name because he, he is an Islamophobe, but he has a very popular show on HBO. I'll leave it at that. I remember a um, he was once talking about Islam, and he he mentioned the fact that many of us know, and some of us Muslims as at least, we sometimes say with pride how Islam had spread over most of the Middle East within 100 years of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi death. So he used that uh, fact that many of us are often proud of he used it as a way to, um, you know, lambast or bash Islam. So how do we, what is your response to that statement where someone may turn that idea against us, where they will say, yeah, you know, Islam didn't spread and it didn't cover, you know, a third of the world or a quarter of the world because they're handing out lamp uh, p- uh, pamphlets and leaflets and stuff. And they were, you know, converting through debate it was spread by it was spread through violence. How would you counter that statement? With uh, that, you know, the fact is that Islam did spread very fast within a hundred years of the Prophet's death. How would you um, counter that argument?
1: Well, I think it, it's all about the nuances, right? Because again, how much history we are talking about here. I mean, even um, uh, one way I like to think about it is that even the life of one person, if you Think about, um, uh, you know, if you ask somebody who has uh, converted to Islam, for example... Um, you will often find that they have a very complex story, right? It, it, there's many twists and turns. It was it wasn't just a straightforward like a click in your mind and now suddenly you're a Muslim kind of thing. Um, and now we are talking about um, historically many different societies, right? Many different time periods, many different cultural exchanges, many different situations, um, and countless sort of people involved, um, and the first thing is that you know even it's the it's the slogan that is just invalid by default it's such a gross um sort of generalization as i said earlier now what are some of these nuances that we can think about um i think one of the first ones is for example that um we often find these, these maps, right, about Islam suddenly, uh, emerging, um, in sort of the, you know, the 620s, um, during the lifetime of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam in the small city-state of Medina, and then it just, um, especially when it's like a, a moving timeline of how empires sort of expanded yeah, yeah. and collapsed through time, then you just see it spread like suddenly it's just everywhere, right? From there, in the first hundred years, roughly, it is the the Muslim Empire extends from Spain um, to to India. Right. Um it's huge and, and the largest empire up until that time in history. Um but is that the spread of Islam, right? So that's that's one of the first nuances. So the spread of the Muslim empire and the spread of Islam are two different things. They're certainly correlated, right? Um, but as we know, correlation does not necessarily imply causation, right? They're right. they're correlated, um, but if you think about it, the spread of the Muslim empire happens within the first hundred years, but even in areas that were conquered by, um, uh, you know, within the first 50 years, so much earlier. So a good example is Iran, the the Persian region, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, It was conquered very early on, but the kind of um, resources that we have um, at our disposal. And the other thing to keep in mind is that um, the Iranian region, there were not um, many sort of treaties, right? The the Iranian region was fully conquered, other than, for example, there was a um, a peace that was agreed to over the city of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was peacefully handed over and things of that nature. But Iran was fully conquered. Right. And Iran was conquered at the time of a person who, um, you know, many people consider to have been a quite uh, stringent. Uh, you know, to the letter of the law kind of follower of Islam, which is Umar radiAllahu anhu, right? right? So this conquest is happening, um, and it's a conquest, and yet Iran, um, according to the studies, um, that historical knowledge and information that's available to us, Iran doesn't actually become a majority Muslim region until centuries, until centuries later after the conquest is complete, like a complete conquest, Mm -hmm. right? So for example, if, you know, during that time people are being um uh, you know, converted at the point of the sword, right? If they're being coerced somehow, if the jizya system is designed to be, um, and in practice is so overwhelming for the people that it's essentially a form of coercion. If like, you know, let's say all of these things are true, then it still doesn't really add up that it would take centuries. We're not just talking about, you know, 10, 20, 50 years. It would take centuries for that to Actually, um, any kind of uh, data analysis that we can do of names, such as Professor Richard Moulier has done an excellent analysis of when um, do sort of the names start to indicate that a region has become a Muslim majority, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And he has drawn like the S-curve, as they call it, of um, there's some early adopters of a religion in most of these regions. So there are very few early adopters. right after a conquest, and then there's a gradual rise, um, and then there's a plateauing of that curve as people are accepting Islam. So, um, and I know I just threw, like, a lot of things out there. So the point is that, and this is why that um, How Islam, uh, How Did Islam Spread article that I did for Yaqeen Institute had to be so long, um, is is precisely, um, uh, you know, the length it's, is part of the point itself, that this is actually a world historical transformative process. Um, Uh, You have to look at things on a case-by-case basis. There certainly have been uh, cases of uh, forced conversion in Islamic history, um, and, you know, Muslims have a responsibility to not just deny those and don't try to make excuses for those or justify those um, somehow, but rather to really admit the fact. I mean, we can explain. We can explain the context. We can try to understand. um, But we should never be trying to uh, defend when there was forced conversion because forced conversion is actually um, clearly, uh, you know, um, prohibited in the Quran. Very clearly. Right? right? Um, Mm -hmm. There is no coercion uh, in religion. So... Um, I think it's it, that is like, you know, a comedian can get up and that's part of um the uh that's part of the problem of the narrative that a comedian can get up and say that and, and make a joke out of it, or an Islamophobe can just make a tweet out of it and, you know, drop it and go. Um and it's it's very much uh, also a linkage of, to the, the popular um, present-day narrative, right, that um, mm-hmm. Islam is associated with terrorism, and Islam is associated with violence in general, right? And then they, they try to make a history, a precedent, right, a, cont- a continuity way back into the past, right, to the time of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa and say that, well, it's not just like, you know— um, uh because of like current political context or something like that actually muslims have always been extraordinarily violent muslims have always been like um these kind of brutish barbarian kind of characters and that's really what the narrative um i believe is is all about and why it's used so widely right but you have to take anyone who is um really a conscientious person, anyone who really is interested in the truth, um, and is really interested even in, um, uh, you know, uh, addressing historical injustices, if people were um, forced to convert to Islam at some point, and, and people were, there certainly are cases. Um, but anyone who's interested in that kind of inquiry has to roll up their sleeves and st- Start going through the sources and really come up with a more nuanced understanding and a more specific understanding for the instance or the the context that they're interested in,
0: okay okay now, what is um in that same article um, how Islam spread through the world throughout the world? you mentioned several different methods that contributed to the expansion of Islam. What of those methods, and I'll let you elaborate on them a little bit further. But you mentioned trade, marriage, um, dawah, influence, things like that. Which one of those do you think? I I know it's hard. I know it's talking about fourteen hundred years of history, so I know it's and hundreds of civilizations probably. So I know it's a lot. But which one of those uh, different methods, or if you know of a different one, was the most effective? um, If you had to just do it from ten thousand foot view, was the most effective to bringing people into The religion of Islam.
1: I would argue that it was Dawah, and I would argue that uh, because I believe it was actually part and parcel of all of the other, um, uh, all of all of the other kind of factors that I discussed. Right. So essentially, um, ultimately, whether it's trade um, or whether it's migration, um, people had to. Embody um, the dawah. They had to embody the message of Islam. They had to visibly practice the message of Islam. Um, and and really, the practice of Islam can be an incredible form of dawah, right? And and there are instances when um, recorded instances in history when when sort of there's one Muslim and they decide to pray and just seeing this you know person do a peculiar movement that no one else in that region has ever seen. Uh, before is kind of um, sparking the curiosity of the people and it's like you know what is this person doing why are they doing this etc and maybe that was what started the conversation about islam with those people who saw that um so i think the the da'wah um is is probably um uh, very clearly the most important uh factor in all of these things um in all you know in all of the other factors is sort of the umbrella. Um, under which all of the others uh, fall. And it's, all of them are essentially a manifestation of different forms of um, da'wah. And, uh, and I think it, it goes a long way to show today as well, um, when we speak about da'wah, um, it's often reduced to things such as lectures and pamphlets and yeah. uh, MSA events on campus and things of that sort. But um, da'wah is essentially um you practicing your uh faith right publicly and in a way that um the public uh or whoever is observing you is inspired right so if you're a a, a business person for example right or in the past if you're like a merchant or a trader and you've gone to some far off place and you're meeting all these people of a different um background, and you're trading with them, etc. And um, if you're a fair person, if you're a person who produces, um, you know, high quality uh, products, if you're honest, right, Um, if you're interesting, etc, all of these things will pique a person's interest. It's like, what essentially makes this guy different, right? Um, What is the kind of um, inspiration for his uniqueness? Like, I like this personality, I like who this person is. And then the next day, if you're walking around in the market and you see that person maybe praying and then you become curious about what he's doing and you learn about his religion and you get, okay, so this is, you know, these people who um, believe in this faith have a certain kind of character, a certain kind of personality that's very likable because it appeals to the fitrah of every human being, right? As we mm-hmm. believe as Muslims, mm-hmm. um, so it, it kind of appeals to the fitrah. So, um I think uh, it it very much speaks to... So part of the the underlying message that I wanted to convey um, through this piece was that we have to really diversify um, and think more broadly um, about how we conceptualize da'wah, right? And we shouldn't limit our da'wah to certain kind of activities, but our our day-to-day, everything that the world sees from us, hears from us, um, should
0: be our dawa, right? Right, right. Gotcha on that one. Now we were speaking about mis- misconceptions earlier. Um, Islam being spread by the sword is one of them. And were there in my um, thought, my work on the podcast, there are lots of things that I thought I understood, and as I got into, I realized I did not understand, and I didn't know what the heck I was talking about. Has have there been any? Um, uh times in your um, studies of Islamic history where you may have thought you knew how something went or you thought you knew how this event went in Islamic history. Once you really dug in, dug into the history, once you really in, went into it, you realize that whatever you knew before was completely wrong. Has there been any time when your understanding of a certain event or a certain time period or era in Islamic history was changed by learning more about that period of time?
1: Um, I think you might agree with me on this but but that's almost the case every time you go deeper into yeah, history yeah, right exactly. um, it's, it's 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 tough to pick out just one time there have been um but but you know I can give a few examples of of cases that were quite um, uh, clear cut right it seemed like I had understood the narrative very well um and very uh holistically um and then i did some more reading about it or i read a different perspective on it and i realized that there's actually a lot more to think about here um and a lot more to consider um and and i think the story of uh salahuddin for example right Uh, salahuddin ayubi Mm -hmm. um, is uh the person who restored uh justice to the holy lands uh to the city of jerusalem um I think uh for so in his case for example, it, it seems very um uh you know, from, from the from the distance, right? Um the beauty of looking at something from the distance is is that you don't see any flaws, right? Okay. Um, and right. uh when you look at the narrative of Salahuddin it's like, well yes, the crusaders came in and they occupied Jerusalem and this uh hero was born and he was raised by scholars. Um And uh, he was of a Kurdish background, but uh, he had this uh, uh, vision for the ummah that didn't only concern his own, you know, immediate people, but he was very concerned for the interests of the ummah in general, Um, again, based on uh, the way he was raised um, under the tutelage of these Islamic scholars. And then they... um, uh, and then they essentially, you know, he raised an army, and then he was able to liberate Jerusalem. And he's very brave and very chivalrous, and all of these things, mm-hmm. right? Um, but, but there's there's actually, uh, and uh, I don't know how um, deeply you've gone into this, but um, as as we know, there's actually many, uh, I guess, again, nuances, right? Many complexities, right. and I think that's something um, that makes you appreciate. Um, Every person in the past, uh, whenever they have uh, achieved something that was great or they've fallen um, to a level of indignity that is sort of it's hard to even wrap our heads around is to always keep in mind um, that everyone always is living in a very complex world. Right. And in, you know. And uh, anyone who was able to make it into a history book, um, anyone who we remember because of something extraordinarily good or extraordinarily bad that they did, right, or that we believe they did, um, that person especially would have been mired in, like, all kinds of complex decisions and situations and and all of that right so um with salahuddin again you know like what about his conquest of egypt right and and what about his um his his uh fight with the the fatimids and bringing down the fatimid dynasty right and um uh, many other aspects of his life um and what he did that we can go into right and um and i think that's one of the the famous examples and i think we'll go into other narratives such as the golden age and things of that sort um maybe you have a separate question for those um mm-hmm. because i think that is an important one to discuss but um generally i think you can open up any kind of um Story, any kind of narrative that you think is well established from Islamic history and you've thoroughly understood it. And when you begin to read more, it really humanizes the people involved Um, and it really makes it more relatable, if you ask me. That, yes, this, you know, we have all kinds of complexities in our lives that we try to navigate through and live the best life possible. And we know that many other people um, have tried the same, right? And essentially, by default, I guess everyone tries to do the same thing um, in history with maybe like a few extreme exceptions. Um, mm-hmm. And and uh, that's, that's the beauty of it, right? So the more I've gone into history, um, the deeper I've gone into any particular topic in history, um, to me, the more kind of enriching it's become, the more kind of relatable, the more mm-hmm. of a learning experience it's become for me.
0: Okay. Now, um, you mentioned a phrase there, golden age. And uh, I guess that's what would you consider to have been the golden age of Islam, outside the Prophet's life, and really even outside the four Caliphs, because that period of time from the um, the the Hijrah to probably the um, the murder of Caliph Uthman, like, that's really the, you know, the Islamic world was, that's, you know, the, the best part. Outside of that time, what would you consider, like, the golden age of Islam? It could be any region. I know every region has their... Um, has their epochs and their downfalls and the and the dears and you know ups and downs in any time of history, but what is and i guess maybe a, if you could transport to any part of the Muslim world at any time of history if you had a, your own Delorean to go anywhere you wanted to in the islamic in islamic um timeline, what would be the place you like to see the most
1: yeah um i know i i kind of um Brought it up preemptively in my the, the last um, comment I was making, but um, I mean these are extremely difficult questions, right? Um, okay. The 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 golden age, and then um, the implication of saying the golden age of Islam, even in a certain region, is that um, it's something that uh, essentially came to an end at some point, right? So. Um, Mentioning golden age implies that there isn't one anymore, um, mm-hmm. and now uh, there is. Uh, there's been a decline for a certain amount of time. So, like you yourself alluded to, it's it's very difficult. You know, while some regions of the Muslim world were weakening uh, politically and economically, and um, the established uh, sort of social um, and cultural uh, infrastructure was quickly breaking down due to certain events. Um, at the same time, others may have uh, been going through the complete opposite kind of transformation where they are emerging and developing uh, very positively, right? Um, so when it comes to um, the golden age of Islam as a whole, I think this is one of the, um, it's very much like the Muslims' version um, of a a grand narrative um, like Islam spread by the sword is for Islamophobes, right? Um, It's like, well, there was a golden age of Islam, but I think it's, um, again, somebody could easily start to poke holes in that narrative very easily, right? And if we're not, aware, if we're not um, familiar with the actual fine details of what was happening, and especially if we're not cognizant of even when there was like a certain ascendancy, um, when there seemed to have been a certain period when times were great for the Muslims, for lack of a better expression, um, there would have been many flaws in the Islamic society, right? Um, So... I know the narrative usually goes that during the Abbasid period um and the cultural production and the House of Wisdom in Baghdad um and uh, sort of the uh, at least um, nominal unity of the Muslim lands um during that time etc it seems to have been a golden age especially you know compared to everything that came after it um but again like um, the reason I actually, I guess, push for this question is precisely to make this point that I think it's, a, it's, it's very difficult, nearly impossible for me to actually place my finger on any time period, right? Um, being to or, or any place um, in any time period because I'm, I guess, too aware of the reality to be able to see that time and place as an ideal kind of situation, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And and that's a a message I I often want to get across. Like, we uh, as Muslims should um, certainly celebrate the the achievements of Muslims in every time and place. And certainly, um, if there are many indications that in some times and places the Muslim community was um, doing exceptionally well. Uh, despite um, some challenges and some shortcomings, then we should celebrate that, and we should look to that as something that we can learn from and model ourselves after. Um, And there are many, many, uh, you know, cases of that in history that we can look at. But um, in terms of an age, right, when we're talking about a very long period of time, um, it's it's just misleading in my opinion i think we often mislead ourselves and mislead others as well and and it becomes sort of an exercise in um not willful intellectual dishonesty but um it effectively that's what it is right for not getting a very realistic picture and and the challenge with that is because essentially if you want to re-establish that quote-unquote golden age, if you want to bring it about again, it seems virtually impossible because we're not thinking about how challenges were navigated because we're not thinking about the challenges very much at all, right? The, the conversation about golden age often centers around um for example, like, you know, the, the major scholars who came out um, and they the invented things and they uh, wrote these incredible works and um, the the major battles that happened and things of that sort. But the actual social challenges, the actual cultural uh, flaws and shortcomings and things of that nature aren't discussed. So we never actually look at the blueprint for how we can look at how those problems were solved or how the positive uh, development of the muslim community continued despite those challenges and we don't ever see a blueprint for how we can kind of try to replicate that today so i hope that's clear like i i know it's not a very um (laughs) <laughs> I know That's it's fine. not the, the easiest answer to mm-hmm. grasp and it's 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 just food for thought from my end and I con- you know continue to think about it as well. Um but it's it's just a very difficult question to answer. Now as for your second question, um as to where I would go, right? Um if I had a time machine, I mean I, I doubt I would be spending any time in twenty twenty, I can tell you that. <laughs> right. Yeah, um, I about probably Um, you know, and and especially in those periods of ascendancy when empires are becoming more Politically and economically powerful, so the rise of the Ottomans, the rise of the Mughals, mm-hmm. um, and the rise of you know various other kingdoms um, that was happening. I would certainly want to see how those developments were happening. So I would like to be those during those periods. So the Mughal Empire uh, during the time of uh, you know um, Humayun and Akbar, right? The Ottomans mm-hmm. during the time of um, you know Suleiman the First and Salim and, and all of these people um and, and just to see um and 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 the other thing is I may be very surprised by what I see because history can be
0: right. you
1: know it can be very misleading the the way we learn it, even though we try our best to um get the clearest and most realistic picture possible um so yeah mm-hmm.
0: there was um I got a few more questions two more questions actually i mean i'm we're kinda of running out of time, but one thing that I agree with you that really resonate is, um, and sometimes we hear this with uh, a lot of our Muslim peers where, and maybe this is, you know, we definitely get this with Salahuddin al-Ayubi, but there's a sort of um, fantasy or uh, a, a deep, in, deeply ingrained romanticization of the Islamic past where it made it seem as if everything was perfect or at least very, very good until this happened, until they went off the Sunnah, or until colonization came, or until something happened, and everything just fell apart. And one of the things I tried to get through in the podcast is try to help people understand it wasn't always perfect. And Muslims and some of your heroes may not have been always been so heroic. And one of the topics that I think is, and I know this is we can't really get into it too deeply, but I just want to hear your thoughts on it, is the caliphate um the khilafat of Islam. And it's not I'm not talking about whether we need one now, how to reestablish. I'm not talking about that. But I sometimes feel as if there is an over romanticization of the title without people really understanding how that role has shifted so much from the time of um, the first one, Abu Bakr, to the last one, the last Ottoman Caliphate, there has been several, and probably hundreds of different Caliphs or people, men who have held that title between then, one, between um, those two points of time, in their roles, in their history, and how much authority they had, and, you know, all there's so much variation in that. I just uh, want to hear your thoughts about... It doesn't have to be necessarily the Caliphate, but I, I, yeah, I do want to know, what do you think about the overall... I don't want to say over-romanticization of the Caliphate, because it is it is important to have a Khilafat in Islam, but what are your thoughts on how modern Muslims see about... Since we haven't had one over over 100 years, almost 100 years now, it has been quite a 100, but it's almost 100 years, and we haven't had an effective one in over 100 years now. What are your thoughts about how we view the... Office of the Caliphate of the Past.
1: I think it's it certainly is. Um, I think it certainly is romanticized. Um, I wouldn't hesitate to to say that. Um, you know, the the ideal. I think it, it's um, agreed upon by by everyone. Um, or. Um, at, at least Muslims of a certain persuasion, right, um, mm-hmm. was during the, uh, the Khulafa al-Rashidun, the rightly guided caliphs, the first four, right? Um, ever since then, um, uh, there's a range of views, right? Um, I think some people overly, overly uh, romanticize um, the, uh, the, the um, institution, of uh, the caliphate right Mm. and and others um overly vilify it right others some (laughs) people are very overly pessimistic about it um and i think both of these um views again um they betray like a lack of nuanced understanding of what it was right and especially because we're having a, a history centered discussion here i think there's two different conversations about what is Khilafa theoretically and ideally and what is Khilafah historically right? And I, I believe there's often like a conflation of the two so was a certain Ottoman person who claimed the title of Caliph fulfilling actually, like, the precedent set by somebody um, like, uh, you know, Ali radiallahu anhu, for example, mm-hmm. right? The fourth of the rightly guided caliph. So was he actually fulfilling that precedent? Was he actually um, fulfilling what the ulama have um, kind of discussed to be the criteria for a person to be an an effective or legitimate uh, caliph, right? Right. Um, and and was he actually, was that institution during that person's time actually serving the interests of the ummah, right? Mm-hmm. So I think there's many different questions that um, need to be unpacked here, and, and I think that that difference is something that um, needs to be drawn out very carefully, that there is an ideal, and there is an ideal precedent from history, but for most of history, we haven't... Um, had an ideal kind of precedent to look at. What we have had is a historically contingent institution, and that means that it took on different forms, even in different parts where it was um, uh, sort of formalized and established. And um, it's not really, you know, one, the history does not actually necessarily reflect very well the long-term history i mean like everybody who claimed the title of caleb does not very um adequately represent mm-hmm. all of the criteria of what that office and what that person actually should be right, right.
0: that's good now um we have only have a few more minutes and i wanted to ask you um on your instagram um i you often share some very interesting stories uh particularly for the for a time you were showing about the history of islam in canada um going back generations i thought that was fascinating and you have other things do you have any um i, I wanted to, if you know any uh, really obscure out of the out of this world a strange stories that you that most muslims probably wouldn't hear of that you want to share if you can uh, sh- break it down about 5 minutes or so
1: yeah, uh, there are so many, first of all, and, and that's something I really like to focus on, is those obscure stories. I really like to diversify Islamic history and our understanding of what Islamic history is. Um, I mean, Islam has reached virtually every part of the world, and you would be surprised, even in the most remote places, and Canada is a good example, we've had Muslim communities here for more than a century, right? Even in the most remote parts of the world, and we have to see all of that as, quote-unquote Islamic history. But I won't go too deep into that now because we're running out of time. Let me just share a quick story. Um, It may not be the best one I have in in sort of mind, but um, it's one of the ones that come to mind is um, of uh, the story of a woman um, that I have been reading about. Her name is Al-Qutlu Khatun. So she is actually... Um, she lived in the late 13th, early 14th century, and she's actually the granddaughter of Hulagu Khan, right? The person, the Mongol, uh, leader who actually, um, led the fall of Baghdad, right? Um, he caused the fall of Baghdad in 1258, which essentially, that is actually is seen as many people as like the end of the Islamic golden age. Um, but, but this story actually kind of, again, gives us a sense of how that narrative can be challenged. Um, even in the slightest ways right so the follow like that she is the granddaughter um she is the sister for people who are like Ertugrul fans like this the fans of the show Girl and the mm-hmm. sequel um uh, the sequel Osman. If people are watching Osman, they'll be familiar with this name of Gay Hatu Khan, right? Who is this kind of tyrannical Mongol leader in Anatolia? Um, and so she's the younger sister of Gay Hatu, and her story is kind of incredible because she's one of the first um, of the Mongols to actually perform the hajj to convert to Islam and perform mm. the hajj, right? So in, in so for first of all, she's not born; she's born into a Buddhist family. Her father, her brother, her siblings are all devout Buddhists, right? So it seems very much that she chose Islam as a religion for herself, and Mm -hmm. then um, she actually Um, You know, uh, and before that, it seems like she had the very traditional, um, I I don't want to essentialize, but there are certain traditional characteristics that we know of in Mongol culture at the time and Mongol society. So in her case, um, her husband was actually murdered in a political dispute. So um, according to the sources, she personally took it on to track down the murderer of her husband and actually kill him herself wow. right Good. so you, you start to get this image of this person Al <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and then uh essentially we don't know if she did that uh, before she uh accepted islam or as a muslim we really don't know um but at some point she does accept islam so she chooses her religion as islam and again she's the granddaughter of the person who caused this incredible devastation to the muslim ummah um and uh, and then she becomes part of a Mongol Mamluk. So the Mamluks are ruling Egypt and Syria, as well as the Hejaz, right? Mm-hmm. And she becomes part of this peace party, this secret peace party in the Mongol court that tries to convince the Mongol rulers to actually sign a peace with the Mamluks. And this is something that there are certain individuals, and she's one of them, influential people in the Mongol court. They work on this for years. They uh, finally achieve it in the year thirteen. 23, the Mongols and the Mamluk sign a treaty, and that same year she goes for Hajj, as if she was working on this thing because of her desire to go to Hajj, because mm. the Hajj region, uh, the Hijaz, was under Mamluk control. So now there's a peace, all the people in the Mongols who are you know, converting to Islam are finally easily able to go. So she goes to Damascus, and there is a young student there, his name is Ibn Qasir, right, the famous <laughs> Mufasir. Okay. He's a young student, he sees mm. her, he describes her visit. Um, and then she goes down uh, in the caravan and just the distinct things, right? She's a Mongol woman, so she prefers to ride a horse rather than like a Hauda on a camel, right, right. as uh, Mamluk ladies traditionally would and she actually leads hunts while they're still permitted to hunt, right? She leads a traditional Mongol ring hunt in the desert to feed the caravan. Um, and then she gives uh, huge amounts of charity in Medina, in Mecca, and many of these scholars, including us Safadi and Ibn Hajar al Asqalani mm-hmm. um, left like very kind of, um, uh, you know, like a positive, uh, they remembered her very positively as someone who did a lot of good for the Muslims, even though we don't have a lot of details. So I think that kind of story really sheds light on, on the one hand, you know, the grandfather was the person who caused the fall of Baghdad, um, and this is the granddaughter, right? And the kind of constant effort that was made, the ongoing da'wah, um, and really the constant ups and downs of the Muslim community. Rather than just like, oh, we were going uphill for a long time and then suddenly we were going downhill. But there's always an opportunity. There's always um, good things that are happening. There's always um, a way to move forward regardless of the consequences, whether things, or sorry, regardless of the context, right? If things are already doing well, you can do better. Mm -hmm. And if things are not doing well, there's still many opportunities for you to do good and inspire others to do good. Um, So that's why I love her story and many other stories like that.
0: Oh no, that was great. Alhamdulillah. Thank you for sharing that one. And I would like um after we, we wrap up and maybe you can send me an email with um um her spelling, the spelling of her name, and I could uh, I, that's a fascinating story. I'd love to share with my uh listeners, inshallah, and uh later on inshallah. But we're gonna have to have you back on here at some point because we've uh, talked about Islamic history very broadly, but maybe in the future if you're okay with it, inshallah, we can talk maybe maybe dig into some of these topics a little bit more deeper and just uh you know. Once again, just chat about some of these um, more specific. As you mentioned, get in some into some nuanced details about some of these topics or the wide range of topic history. If you're okay with that, if if you have the time.
1: Absolutely. Um, I, I'd really be uh, interested in doing that, and I would appreciate the opportunity. I really enjoyed this conversation. So, jazakallah khair for having me on and for really putting the podcast together and, and, and making it what it is over the years. Mashallah, it's an incredible effort and uh, I think hugely beneficial for the Muslim community. So, I really appreciate that.
0: Alhamdulillah, thank you. I appreciate the uh, appreciate the approval. It's it's um it's the same thing. It's mostly trying to... um help defend, I won't say defend Muslims, but trying to break down that narrative of Islamic spread by the sword, helping Muslims understand their history better. That's what it's all about. I want to mention your, um, links before you go. So you have, um, your personal blog, make sure I have this correct is, um, I history.co. Correct. That's, um, that's correct. Yes. Okay. All right. And that's, uh, what do you share there? pretty much your, um, you write articles about history or whatever's on your mind. What's what mostly goes on over there? Uh,
1: no, uh, I mean essentially whatever is on my mind, but um, that's usually Islamic history. So
0: <laughs> both okay. of those are true. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. And Then your um, Yaqeen Institute page—it's um, a long one—but yaqeeninstitute.org dot org slash author slash Hassam dash Munir. I'll put in the I'll put in link. It's a long one to read, but I'll put it in on the page once it, once it gets out there if he wants to read it. But um, brother Hassan, I, I thank you very much for coming on today. I know um, these are some some uh, broad questions here but it was some of these things have to has to be discussed we got to tackle them so i'm hoping we can go further in the future inshallah is there any um any any projects you're working on that any, that we can be looking forward to in the future before i let you go i just want to know if there are any other prog- projects you have that you want to share with um the islamic history podcast community
1: um, there's many, uh, articles mostly, um, that I'm working on at the moment, uh, sort of research articles and research papers. I don't want to go into any particular details because I think, um, we would certainly yeah, go yeah. over time, but, right. um, if people stay engaged on, on social media and keep an eye on the blog, uh, I would really appreciate that. They'll be soon, you know, seeing those sooner, um, hopefully soon, I would say, inshallah.
0: Okay. All right. Inshallah. So we'll share your links to your, um, to your uh, blog and your Yaqeen your, your Institute page uh, once the website, once this um, episode goes out. Brother Sam. thank you for, so much for being a guest today, and inshallah, may Allah reward you for the work you're doing, and uh, keep up the good work, inshallah, hopefully we'll have a chance to speak in the future.
1: Ameen, and inshallah, thank you so much, and uh, I look forward to it, certainly.
0: Okay, alhamdulillah. assalamu alaikum alaykum,
1: wa Wa alaykum salam